Thank you, Jason. Good morning. We are continuing in the book of Philippians this morning, so turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible on you, there's some in the seats. And of course, we are picking up from verse 12, and we're going to be finishing out the chapter. And uh, as you turn there and as you get ready, um, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you, and even tell you now with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Father, as we approach you in the boldness afforded to us by the blood of Christ and by the the power of your spirit working in us. We pray that you would open up your word to us this morning. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds so that we would not only understand what is said here, but that we would take it into our hearts and live differently as a result. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us all to be of one mind centered around your gospel and to press on together. And Lord, would you please bless our time in worship here as we listen to your word. Please eliminate me and please let your truth be communicated for the edification of your people and for your glory. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So if you recall from earlier in chapter 3, Paul has just expounded on the radical abandon that he has in his pursuit of Christ, in his faith. We saw in chapter 8, excuse me, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And of course, these verse breaks, these line breaks, these chapter breaks are arbitrary. This is what he's just said. He's talking about forgetting everything, leaving everything behind, counting it all as loss, as rubbish, and knowing Christ and valuing him as far greater. Well, I don't know about you, but there's times where, for me in the Christian life, I look at Paul and I read these places in Philippians, and and actually another pastor made a similar effect. You know, it almost seems that 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 Paul is standing there, you know, on some mountaintop with his, uh, you know, hands on his hips and his cape blowing in the wind. You know, he looks like a super Christian in this passage here. And it's easy to read that and, and feel like it's so far off and so remote. How could this possibly describe my experience? And Paul almost anticipates that objection. And so when we pick up in verse 12, he almost anticipates it by saying, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect. So he's almost anticipating someone who said, come on, Paul, you've, you've seriously arrived? If, because if you have, you're the only one here, because I will, I'll be the first to admit that I haven't arrived. And he essentially answers, no, I haven't arrived, but that's no excuse. 
We can't stop pursuing Christ. We cannot coast into spiritual maturity. Just like in war, you're either gaining ground or you're losing it. There's no equilibrium. And even Paul had room to grow. And just the other week I was working on my car. I was working on the brakes in my car. And uh, it needed new front pads. It needed new shoes in the rear. Uh, It needed everything. And I was working on it with my neighbor, and his driveway is on a little bit of an incline. And so we, we got about halfway done, and we figured, all right, let's call it a night. It was starting to rain. And so I hopped in, and I was going to back out and drive down the street to my own house and park it for the night. And let me tell you what, backing down off of a hill onto a, car where, or onto a street where there's other cars parked is a terrible place to learn that you have no functioning brakes. So it was it was a little bit risky, and I, I, I had no brakes at all. It, it took me, you know, once I got to the general area of where I wanted to park, I had to start, like, braking, like, 20 feet in advance of where I wanted to be, right? But I learned that lesson the hard way, drifting backwards down that driveway. In the Christian life, you're either going forward or you're receding, right? But because the Christian life is an uphill climb, you can't coast into spiritual maturity, We don't coast into holiness either. So just as a preview of where we're going this morning, the prize of perfection with Christ. This is how we can encapsulate the whole section that we just read here. The prize of perfection with Christ compels us to press on in the race of faith and beware the resistance of the rebellious world. And so we've titled this message this morning, The Race and the Resistance. The Race and the Resistance. And you see... Paul talks about the race that he's running in verses 12 through 16, and then from 17 to the end, he talks about the resistance that we encounter along the way. But that first point there is that he encourages us to run the race. We pursue the prize of perfection with Christ for three reasons that we'll unpack. First, because God owns us, because God calls us, and third, because God is maturing us. So let's dive into verse 12. We already talked about the fact that Paul says that he hasn't already arrived. What does he mean, though, when he says, not that I've already obtained this? Right? Paul's already saved. He's already a Christian. What is it that he hasn't already attained? Is he earning his salvation here? We, we would say no. Notice, he parallels this. He says, not that I've obtained this or am already perfect. So whatever this is referring to is the same thing that's referred to when he says, or am already perfect. He's referring to the previous verse here. So glance up at, at verse 10 and 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's present, that's active. But then verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. And that's not may as in I might attain resurrection from the dead. That's not saying I might attain glory with Christ someday, but that's saying that he hasn't reached that finish line yet. So what he's pursuing, this prize, is perfection with Christ. It's attaining to the power of the resurrection. And we should note as well that that like Paul, as, as he talks about running the race, as he talks about striving forward, pressing forward, we should have that same hunger that realizes and acknowledges that we haven't arrived yet. We're not there yet. In Moses, in Exodus 33, verse 18, he's he's on the mountain with God. And what does he say to Yahweh? He says, please show me your glory. Have we ever hungered for God in that way? I know I don't as often as I should. But then in the next few verses here, he 
he models these two things in pursuit of God. He talks about straining forward, pressing on, straining forward, and he talks about leaving things behind. So let's, before we talk about why he does these things and those three reasons that I said that we would unpack, let's talk about what, what, is, what, what action here is he depicting? Okay, because this is figurative, right? He's talking about these, this athletic metaphor. He's talking about running a race. Well, what is he referring to? Right, especially when he says, when he strains forward, I press on. He says press on twice. And then he says he presses on to what lies ahead. So what is, what is the action here? I mean, does this mean that when he's praying, he's, like, he's also like clinching his muscles and planking and, and giving himself an isometric workout? He's, he's sweating while he's praying. I mean, what does it actually mean that Christian living is exerting all of this energy for him? Well, first, we should note what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he's straining to receive salvation or perfection. And it doesn't mean that he's straining to retain it. He's not trying to earn his salvation and he's not trying to keep his salvation. That's not what's going on here. He's not receiving. He's not retaining. He's realizing his salvation. As we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 2, that he's working out his salvation with fear and trembling. It's already been worked in, but now it has to be exercised. He's straining to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, which means being like him now in his death and in his suffering, and that takes effort. That takes exertion from us to suffer well, to know Christ. The prize and the payoff is later in the Christian life, but knowing him now, being like him in his suffering, it does take effort from us as well. We can't coast into it. It's not automatic. There's two things that we can't confuse here that are relevant to all of us as believers. There's union with Christ, and there's communion with Christ. Don't confuse the two. Don't conflate the two. The moment you place your faith in Christ, the moment that you are in Christ as a follower of Christ, you have union with Christ. His death is your death. His life is your life. You are new. You are forgiven. You are justified. That's union with Christ. That's the basis of our salvation. Communion with Christ is the experiential realization of those realities. It's relationship with this Christ with whom we've been unified. Union is constant. Communion fluctuates. To really know Christ and to have union with Christ decisively means that in terms of our experience of that reality, we want to know him more and more, and we need to hold up the mirror in our own lives and, and ask ourselves, do I have a desire to know Christ more? Because to know Christ is to want to know him more. To have union with Christ is, in a sense, to want more communion with Christ. And if we're too busy to prioritize deepening in our knowledge of Christ personally, intimately, we're too busy. Being too busy to know Christ is being too busy. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about straining forward. He's talking about reaching perfection with Christ and realizing union with Christ even now in his relationship with him. What is he leaving behind? Because notice he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So there's a pressing on and there's a leaving behind. And first, it's pretty obvious. We leave behind sin, right? That's, that's a given. To come to Christ is to turn your back on sin. It's to repent. Repentance is a key part of faith. 
But sin isn't the only thing that we turn our backs on. By the way, let's talk about sin just for a moment. We repent when we come to Christ. But he's also talking about leaving behind all of these things. There's a difference between real repentance that leaves it in the rearview mirror and a worldly human grief and anxiety over our past sin and our past mistakes that holds us captive to the past. We have to repent, acknowledge our past sin, but Paul doesn't want us to be held captive to the past. Godly sorrow, 1 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, helps you live in such a way that you're free from regret. Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's a type of turning from the sin in the past that, that can keep you feeling ashamed and keep you held captive to that, but then there's a type of real repentance where you feel ashamed, you acknowledge your grief, and you turn from it, and you realize, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says he's trying to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are made new. Move on. Your sin is gone. It's in the grave, and you're free from it. From it. You can live with that in the rearview mirror. So we certainly leave behind sin, but we don't just leave behind sin. We also leave behind success. We also leave behind self. Things that aren't wrong, but things that aren't good enough. Charles Spurgeon said the discernment isn't just knowing right from wrong. It's knowing right from almost right. And that's what spiritual maturity is. It's, it's not just leaving behind things that are morally wrong or explicitly condemned in Scripture, but sometimes it's also choosing what you know is, is best for you and your relationship with Christ, even though You don't necessarily have to by way of command. You want more of Christ. What Paul used to value, which he had listed in the previous section there, he said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He lists all of these generally positive things, minus persecutor, but he's he's listing his resume, all of his credentials. That's what he, on his ledger in his life, logs as losses. He counts them as loss. He counts them as scubalon, rubbish, feces. He disregards all of these things. We turn from sin. We leave behind success. We leave behind self. The Christian life is frontward facing. You can't grow without relinquishing the past. When you're driving down a highway, you, you can't go 65 in reverse, right? That's not how it works. And there are times when we have to acknowledge the past, respect the past. We don't divorce ourselves from our past and our history. But we also have to recognize that if we've died with Christ, we've been raised in newness of life. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And that means that the Christian life is future-oriented. We can't be enslaved to our past whether it's for ourselves as individuals, whether it's for ourselves collectively as the church or as this church. We strain forward to what lies ahead. And because this takes work, because this isn't easy, Paul interweaves some encouragements along with these exhortations. So let's look at the three reasons that Paul gives us to press on and run the race. First, because Christ owns us. 
The first motive that he lays before us is our mutual possession. We own Christ and Christ owns us. We've been owned. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There are days when spiritually I feel like I'm phoning it in. But there's no greater comfort than knowing that Christ is holding on to me tighter than I'll ever hold on to him. Hebrews 2.11 says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. In John 10, he says that those whom the Father has given him, his children, his elect, he's holding them in his hand. And not only that, but so is the Father. The Father is holding them in his hand, and no one can snatch them out. And remember, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul had said to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't take ownership of us. He doesn't procure us in vain. He does it because he is personally invested in what becomes of us. So he's holding on to us. He owns us. Pursue Christ because he owns you. Second is our heavenly vocation. The fact that Christ calls us. We have been called. He says this. He presses on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. Literally, this is the high calling. It's a call upward to heaven, but it's also a high call in itself. It's, it's worthy. It's a big deal. Notice two things about this calling. First, is that it's effectual. Meaning it accomplishes the purpose for which it goes out. Right? Think of Lazarus. When Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus didn't have to sit there deciding if he was going to come forth or not. Right? The command produced the result. And that's what happens when Christ calls us. And we see this again in verse 6 of chapter 1. He will bring this good work that he started in you to completion. He says this in verses 10 and 11 too. He's praying for them so that they'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This does happen. This will happen. The call of God is effectual for his people that he's chosen, and it's also intensely personal. The call is effectual. The call is personal. Because Paul is not just pursuing heaven in the abstract. He's not just pursuing, oh, how cool would it be to live in heaven, to be free from pain, to float on clouds, to play harps. He's not pursuing any of these things in abstract. This isn't the Greek philosophy of of the... uh, the immortality of the soul, right, where all you got to do is break free from this body and then you're, you're golden, right? That's not what he's advocating here. That isn't the goal. This call is personal because the goal is God. He presses on, verse 14, towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So God is the call. He's the goal. He's calling us to himself, The call is of God. The call is in Christ Jesus. God isn't just calling you to go to heaven someday. He isn't just calling you to be saved in the abstract. He is bringing you to himself. That's another motivation to pursue him. Christ owns us. God calls us. And third is our gradual growth, the fact that God is maturing us. It says this in verse 13, I don't consider that I've made it my own. 
And then in verses 15 and 16, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And when he says, those of us who are mature, literally the word there, if, if, depending on the translation that you have in front of you, is perfect. But he's not saying that we are perfect. He's already said we haven't arrived yet. Morally, physically, we're not perfect. We're, that, that's evident. The fact that we're not perfect is manifest, right? This is not a perfection of destination as though we've arrived spiritually. This is a perfection of orientation, of direction. We're heading this direction. We won't be perfect this side of glory, but we're heading towards that after this life. This is maturity. Maturity is what he's talking about. And so the encouragement that he lays before them is is essentially, let those of you who are mature think this way. Listen, you've made it this far spiritually. God is maturing you. You're not starting this race at the starting line. This isn't written just to Christians who were saved yesterday. They've made it so far. Many of the individuals in this room, you've made it so far with Jesus, whether it's one year, whether it's six weeks, whether it's 50 years, you've made it this far. Keep running. You don't, you don't stop a marathon on the last mile or kilometer or however we measure those things these days. You don't, right? You've made it this far. And he says, if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal that to you. He'll, he'll illuminate his truth. He's not going to give you direct revelation from heaven. He's not talking about inspiring you. That's not what he's talking about. But he will illuminate. He'll, he'll bring it to your mind where you need to grow. And he'll do this for the church collectively. He'll do this for all of us. And just a note about this kind of spiritual maturity that he's talking about. Sometimes realizing that you need to make progress and wanting to make progress, sometimes that actually is progress. And and that's encouraging. Remember, Paul actually wanted to go home to heaven in verse 23 of chapter 1. He says, I desire to be Christ, which is with, with Christ, which is far greater. Right? He knew that that would be better. He was tired. He was willing to stay here, willing to work, willing to fight, willing to do the Christian thing, but he wanted to be home with Christ. That was better in his mind. There was a Presbyterian minister, and, and uh, he was president of um, Princeton uh, in the 18th century. His name was uh, Reverend Samuel Davies. And he, he wrote, I read an excerpt from something that he had written in a letter um, when he was sick in the 1750s. I think it was 1757. And he described how from, a ch- from his time as a child, he was super optimistic. He wanted to live as long as possible so that he could spiritually mature as, lo- as, as much as possible in preparation for heaven. Okay, so he, he wanted to really, you know, dial down, hunker down, and do the Christian thing and grow as much as physically possible for as long as possible, so that when he met Christ in heaven, he'd be, he'd be there. He will have attained maximum spiritual maturity. But when, when, he, when he's ill, and when he's writing to this friend of his, he says now he's grieved, and he's upset, because he's realizing that the longer he's in this world, the harder it is to grow. And actually, time spent in this world tends to have the opposite effect, right? There's resistance. There's pushback. The more you grow, the harder sometimes it gets to grow. And so he says he's actually grieved. He was upset that he might not grow anymore spiritually. He's saying that, that that's the worst feeling is realizing, like, I might not grow any more spiritually than where I'm at right now. And he was longing for heaven, 
and he, he uses this metaphor, and he says he wants to serve Christ forever like, a, like the seraphim, the, the angels, the, the burning ones, like an enraptured burning one, he says, basically, that he, he wants to be consumed and serve Christ perfectly forever in heaven. But, but looking at that prayer, I mean, have you ever had those thoughts? Have you ever, have you ever been upset that you might not grow more spiritually? I mean, he's, he's clearly at a certain plane, right, that those are the things that are keeping him up at night. Right? The more he grows spiritually, the more he realizes that he needs to grow. The more sin that he mortifies, kills, the more he realizes how far he has to go. And that is progress. It might not feel emotionally like progress to him, but that is progress. Because what is he after? More of Christ. Right? That's his goal. Listen, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged at what God is doing in your life. Unbelievers don't hate their sin. They don't thirst for more spiritual maturity. They don't want Christ more. So if you've ever wanted those things, if you've ever wished you were further along spiritually than maybe you are now, as, as I do, even the fact that you want that is evidence of God's grace working in your life and the Spirit of God working in your life. But the longer we are in this world, the harder that gets, and we do encounter resistance along the way. And so first Paul encourages us to run the race, but the second point here this morning is that we have to also beware the resistance. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told you often and tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We imitate those who run well and we beware the resistance because the finish line is our homeland, and that's where we're going to camp out for the remainder of our time here this morning. But if we're running a race, if the Christian life is a race from here to glory, right, to the final state, to the new heavens, the new earth, the resurrection, that moment when Christ has finished subjecting all of his enemies to him, right, that, that moment that we saw a glimpse of in Isaiah chapter five, twenty-five 25 this morning, right, where there's this feast, this table laid out for, for all the nations. We have that now in part, but when we have that in whole, Right? If that's our goal and if this is a race, we have to realize there's resistance in this race. There's hecklers in the stands. Okay? There's nail strips on the road. This is a, this is a dated metaphor, so I'm sorry. But like the, do you remember the old Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Wacky Races? Right? There's like, they're laying down glue traps on the road, and they're like launching missiles at each other. And then there's Dick Dastardly and his sidekick dog, Muttley, that are just plotting all of these evil schemes and these obstacles along the way. That's what this Christian life is like. It's not just a straight shoot. We're running against the flow. There's strong opposing traffic coming at us this way, right? There's as many people as possible heading the opposite direction away from Christ. And the risk is that we would veer into that opposite lane and get sideswiped or have a head-on collision. So Paul warns us about the opposition. And he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. When you're driving, we're all familiar with the phenomenon of rubbernecking. Some of us, like myself, who drive on 83 every day, know this phenomenon too well. But the fact is, is that where you stare is where you steer. Right? Wherever you fix your eyes is where you happen to drift in that direction. And so he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. He's saying, fix your eyes on the right example. This assumes, of course, that we know 
not only the teaching of the people that we allow ourselves to be influenced by, our role models, our teachers, our spiritual authorities. This assumes not only that we know their doctrine on paper, but it also assumes that we know their conduct and their lifestyle. In this transition time as a church, we have to realize that a, a, a man's doctrine on paper is as important as his lifestyle and vice versa. Paul says, keep an eye. He says to Timothy, keep your eye not only on the teaching, not only on the doctrine, but also on your conduct. And so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So this assumes proximity between the shepherd and his sheep, between the positive examples for the Philippians and between the Philippian believers themselves. Right? You have to be close enough to whoever your spiritual influence is to see how they're living. You have to know their lives. You can't be discipled by YouTube, right? You can't be discipled by the radio. I love those things as much as anyone, but those things can't call me out. Those things can't call you out when you're walking in a way that doesn't conform with your confession. So if this is a race, pick the right people to draft yourself behind, right? Draft behind the right individuals. And he describes exactly who these people are. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and tell you now even with tears. But he says there's many of them. So these types of people that he's about to warn us about, they aren't the exception. They're the rule. As Christians, as we look out over the world, over society and culture, there's lots of emotions that we feel, that we can feel, that we should feel, that we do feel, but shock shouldn't be one of them. We should never be shocked to find sin in the world should be the least surprising thing to any believer who, who, who believes in Genesis, who knows what's wrong in the world. And who specifically is he referring to? Remember how we started this chapter last week, verses 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So these enemies that he's referring to certainly includes, it's not limited to, but it includes the Judaizers, the circumcision party, those who were coming into the church and were saying, if you want to be a real super Christian, you have to go through these physical rites and rituals according to Jewish law. You have to keep all of the Torah, including the commands that were just meant for Israel at that moment in history. You have to do all of those things to be a real super Christian or even really to be saved. That was the circumcision party, and that's in part who he has in view here. And he says, I've told you of them often. Right? If, if you followed Paul throughout the New Testament, you know that that's true. Remember in Acts chapter 20 when he's bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders, and he's kneeling with them, and they're having this tear-filled moment, and he pleads with them. He says, I didn't stop warning you night and day. And he says, wolves will come from your own midst. Right, So this, these warnings against false teachers, this wasn't just every now and then when a particular false teacher made it into the news because he had some multi-million dollar mansion somewhere and so it was worth addressing. Apparently, warning people of these enemies of the cross was a regular cadence in Paul's preaching. All throughout the epistles, this theme is hammered. And Second Peter and Jude are entirely about the problem of false teachers and false prophets. And he says he warns them with tears. So he wasn't just a, a, a discernment blogger in his basement, right? He wasn't just a basement blogger. He, he wept when he warned. 
out of love for the church, out of grief over those who had followed these people and have made shipwreck of their faith. And since he's telling us to, to follow his example and those like him, we should follow and aim our lives in the trajectory of those who weep when they warn us. Men who have shepherds' hearts, who bleed affection for the flock, those are the people that we should imitate. Those who talk about these things not just as theological abstractions, but those who warn us even with tears. And he says these are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that mean? Well, partly it's obvious, but let's just split it into two categories for convenience sake. There's people who are enemies of the cross in word and in deed. Enemies in word and in deed. So in terms of those who oppose the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the teaching of the cross, the gospel itself, which centers on the cross of Christ, there's a difference between those who resist the gospel because they're lost and those who actively oppose the gospel. There's a difference between the lost and enemies, opponents. That's important for us to distinguish. All opponents to the gospel are lost. We understand that, that apart from Christ, there's no way to be saved. But not all who are lost are opponents of the gospel necessarily. Christ is the great shepherd of sheep, right? Well, who are some of the other groups and categories? Well, in Matthew 25, we see that Christ separates the sheep from the goats, right? The goats are those who aren't truly saved, but there's also wolves. So what we have to realize here is there's a difference between those who are lost and those who are active opponents of the cause of Christ. There's a difference between goats and wolves. Goats aren't sheep, neither are wolves, but goats won't eat the sheep. Wolves will. And we realize, of course, that our real enemies aren't physical enemies, but we do have real spiritual enemies. And Paul, who simultaneously says in Romans chapter 9 about the Jews that he weeps for them, and he wishes he could even wish himself a curse and cut off for the sake of Christ for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He loves the lost. He desires for them to be saved. That's why he's out preaching the gospel. But the same man can also say in 2 Timothy, hey, beware of Alexander the coppersmith. He greatly opposed our cause. Let God give him what he deserves. Or in Galatians chapter 1 and elsewhere in the book, if anyone preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Let them be damned. Let them be cut off. Paul has very choice words for those who are active opponents to the gospel, even while praying for their salvation. Because if you love the sheep, you don't handle the wolves with kid gloves. There's people who oppose the cross in word and also in deed so you can be an enemy of the cross in theory in this book and hold different doctrinal convictions but you can also be an enemy in practice of the cross on your back and that's something into which we can all fall prey because the context here is that we're supposed to be straining to know christ to make him known and to know him in his suffering in order to attain the power of the resurrection So we have to embrace the cross on paper and in practice. Suffering has been granted to us. Chapter 1, verse 29 says, It's been granted to you to believe and to suffer for his sake. So we just came off of Easter. When the topic of the cross comes up, what comes to mind for you? What do you think? How do you feel about the cross of Christ? That's the most important thing about you. 
Is it an afterthought in your theology? Or is it at the center of your theology? You expect suffering to come. You don't have this theology that says, I'll always be a a super Christian. It'll just be going from victory to victory, from one thing to the next, and you're expecting everything to go smoothly, and so you're surprised when the dark night of the soul comes. Or is the cross so central to your theology that you expect suffering because you're in it to know Christ, realizing that that means being conformed with his sufferings, identifying with him in pain so that you can know him better on the other side of that and ultimately in eternity. It's the distinction that Martin Luther made between a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. A theology of glory is one that says it's always going to go well, it's going to be victorious, you're going to be a super Christian. You know, that's the cape blowing in the wind, standing on the top of the mountain, hands on your hips. That's that type of faith versus the theology of the cross isn't surprised by grief. We can be friends of the cross on paper, technically, in our religious views, but we can be enemies when it comes to how we live out our faith. Tim Keller has told a story, maybe you've heard it, of someone that he encountered was sharing the gospel with her. And uh, I believe she may have come from some of a, some, somewhat of a nominal, maybe Catholic, uh, somewhat of a religious background, where she was used to the idea of working to, to earn salvation, being a good moral person. And she had this moment where she realized, she says, wait a second, you're saying that my salvation has nothing to do with my works, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with my deeds. And he's saying, yes, absolutely right. All you do is believe in Christ. And her hesitancy to embrace Christ, she didn't want to because she realized if, if Jesus saves me completely regardless of anything that I do or earn or deserve, if he saves me as a free gift and it's his sovereign choice to take me and save me, then there's no limit to the demands that he can place on me. See, if I earn it, right, if I pay X amount of spiritual currency in order to receive salvation, if, if being saved is a quid pro quo, then sooner or later, I've paid my dues, Jesus has his demands on me, but then we draw the line there. But if Christ owns me, all of me, and I didn't have to pay anything, but I'm simply his, he saved me by his grace, there's no limit to the demands that he can place on me. We have to make sure that we're not enemies of the cross. Their end, verse 19, is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. So there's a distinction here. There's a contrast that he's making between us. We're running this race of faith. Our goal is heaven. Their goal is destruction. Our drive, we're driven to know Christ more, to be conformed with him in his sufferings, attain the power of the resurrection. Their drive is what? It's their belly. They glory in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So first, their God is their belly, right? That They're slaves to appetite. They're slaves to self-indulgence. They can't say no to themselves. Their appetites are their gods. Colossians 3, 5. Covetousness is idolatry. Not it's like idolatry, but it is idolatry. Make note, when we make idols, they make us. Psalm 115, verse 8 says, Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. If you're living to fill an appetite, whether it's for food, whether it's for sex, whether it's for money and wealth, whatever that is, it'll dominate you, it'll own you, it'll be your God. They glory in their shame. 
So they flaunt their impurity. We know all about this in today's culture, right, with the entire sexual revolution. We understand that things that people should be ashamed of morally in in their private lives, all of those things, become celebrated out openly. That's the sort of thing he's talking about. They glory in their shame. They use the cross. They're, They're enemies of the cross because they use it as license for sin. And so they glory in their shame. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There's something good about being ashamed. Shame is a gift. Shame keeps us from doing things that are shameful, right? So we shouldn't be squeamish about noting that sin is vile. It's ugly. It makes the sinner vile and ugly, too. It defiles. We should use biblical vocabulary about sin. We shouldn't use euphemisms. We shouldn't celebrate it. We shouldn't honor it. By the way, lest we congratulate ourselves too much, lest we pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, like the Pharisee, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so down the street who lives that way. He's an enemy of the cross. His God is his belly. His glory is in his shame. Augustine in the City of God writes, every good man resists in others those points in which he resists himself. So to hate sin at all is to hate it in my life and in the lives of others. If there's sins that we hate, that we want to make war on, we should be making war on them in ourselves and not exclusively or only in other people. We fight in others what we fight in ourselves. Finally, he says their minds are set on earthly things. And that seems kind of like an anticlimactic way to take this, right? Their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. Like, earthly, why is that the word that he grasps for there? That doesn't seem that big a deal. I mean, we are on earth after all, right? But it's, it's talking about a fixation on what is base, what is temporal, what is not eternal. You know, are you obsessed with the here and now? Do you think about the things of God often? Or are they always the last thing to come to mind for you? Does someone have to drag spiritual conversation out of you kicking or, and, and screaming? Or do you delight in the things of the Lord? Colossians 3, 1 through 3, right? If, if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on the things of God, right? Where your life is hid in heaven, they're with him. Right? Do you enjoy talking about the things of God? Do you care about them? And so he's drawing this contrast between minds that are stuck in the earthly realm and minds that are prepped for heaven. And so he concludes, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that metaphor of citizenship. If you've ever felt lonely, if you've ever struggled to put down roots, maybe after college you went from one job to the other, you know, every three or four or five years. This isn't our home. The new earth, the new heaven, the kingdom realized is our home. We belong to another realm. As we're running this race, on the other side of the finish line is our native country, our homeland. You know, we, we lose the significance of citizenship because it's, it doesn't come up often for us, but if you've ever known someone who's been through a citizenship process, if you've ever been to a, a citizenship ceremony, right, after somebody has taken test after tests, after they've applied to become an American citizen, it's a momentous occasion. I know people, because my, my job attracts a lot of internationals, I know people who, who stay up at night wondering about whether or not they're going to get their visa renewed. Right? Belonging is important. And the place where we belong is heaven. 
Our identity is not in our race, our nationality, any particular partisan political affiliation. Because we're born again, because we're born from above, because we're born into a new kingdom, by virtue of our regeneration, our spiritual birth certificate says that we were born in the city of God. That's actually what Psalm 87 says. It's pretty cool. Take a look. Galatians 4 says the Jerusalem above is our mother. We are born again as natural-born citizens of there, of the other place. And so, to close, three reasons to look at our heavenly homeland. And he gives them. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. First reason, Christ is there. Why would you long for heaven when this life is so appealing? Christ is there. He is our prize. We shouldn't want a heaven without Jesus in it. Second, Christ transforms us there. He'll transform us in our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Verse 21. So our lifelong fight with our flesh will be finished. It will be won. Remember, the Judaizers thought if you just take your body through these outward rituals, you'll finally be saved. Well, Paul is saying, hey, we're getting a new body altogether. Leave all that stuff behind. The body that, that is a place where you fight sin right now, you will win that fight. Christ will transform us there. And third reason to look to heaven, Christ reigns there. He says that he transforms us by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself including you. Christ is subjecting everything to himself. He's putting all of his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. And your arrival in heaven is as certain as his. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, thank you for this truth that that as we run this race, we leave behind sin, we leave behind things that might be good but aren't good enough. And we can know you, we can experience you. Lord, help us to resist those who live after worldly pleasures, who keep their minds on the things of earth and not heaven. Help us to long for heaven because Christ is there. We thank you that you'll transform our bodies, that one day we'll be able to say goodbye to this fight, that we'll win. We thank you that you are subduing us and our lowly bodies and everything else in the universe to Christ as Lord. And for anyone in this room who doesn't know him as Lord, I pray that you would bring that person in subjection to you through repentance and faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Stand with me for our final song. Every single day. We just pray these things in your name.